0: Everyone and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show, Media Giant Effect, and celebrity interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? This is exactly the kind of a topic you like to talk about, isn't it?
1: Oh, I really do. I mean, I'm so into innovation, growth, technology. You know, making America its amazing self again. I'm just, I'm all about that.
0: Yes, and my guest today is Colonel John Mills. He's going to talk about innovation race. Colonel Mills, thank you for your service again, and uh, this is such an honor to have you on the show today.
2: Yeah, thank you, uh, uh, Neil and Greg, an honor to be with you likewise. Thank you very much. All right, Greg, go ahead and hit him off with his first question.
1: Well, that's great. Well, it's, it's a real pleasure and honor to meet you, sir. I appreciate it, and thank you for your service. Um, so what prompted you to jump in and create this Innovation Race?
2: uh well uh, yeah thank you so much i uh, it it, it uh, i was invited to uh, participate uh, in in the film uh by uh, luke and uh, uh it's it's his film uh but i i was one of uh, uh, an august set of characters uh and and in the in the uh, in the movie and uh what's uh simultaneously i have a have a have a book out right now called uh the nation will follow That's actually very closely related but i mean the simple bottom line on innovation race is in 2011 we had a new law passed and i was at the time in the uh, office sector defense working on a, a parallel cyber piece of legislation but the innovation uh, one was supposed to improve the patent system. Uh, but as we've learned from the 2002 Helping Americans Vote Act or the Reflation Inflation Reduction Act, never, ever, ever, ever trust a nice sounding piece of legislation. This was the uh, essentially the America Innovates Act uh, from 2011. And it took our system, which is. It's in the Constitution. A lot of Americans don't realize that. Our, con- our, our, our patent system is in the Constitution. And it took our patent system, which maybe wasn't perfect, maybe needed some tweaks, and essentially uh, uh, gutted it, created a essentially an internal uh, uh, legal panel and court. Uh, I, I should use the term court. Where whereby big tech could attack and assail relentlessly over and over again awarded patents. Well, what's the outcome when that happens? Why get a patent? Uh, so American innovation is dropping with the American Innovates Act. Uh, and who benefits? China. China. I mean, what did China do? China took our existing system and ran with it. Uh, uh, instead, we shot ourselves many times in the foot. And uh, everybody's looking around, going, "Yeah, so what? Big deal? Who cares?" Uh, but that was part of the initial marriage of big tech and the early Obama administration as they were getting to know each other. And it was uh, it's it's a it's a very b- bad piece of legislation. It's hurt us very badly when it comes to uh, innovation in in all all worlds, but especially in the big tech world.
1: Well, wow. and you know, you bring up big tech, and you bring up you know China, and you bring up. You know, scooping up IP and all of that stuff. And it makes me think, you know, where do we fit uh, in America now up against, you know, some of the state actors that are out there like China and so forth um, in terms of security, you know, protection, cybersecurity for us and our citizens?
2: Well, I mean, first and foremost, as we're now learning through the Twitter leaks and uh, a lot of my personal involvement, in, uh, and that's why I, I also put out the uh, the parallel book, uh, The Nation Will Follow, um, is because I, I realized uh, the marriage of big tech and big government is uh, unlawful and it is very bad. Um, it's bad for all Americans, as we're learning in the Twitter leaks, uh, this uh, Foreign Influence Board. Uh, I I, I know some of these national security laws pretty well, and uh, I think it is just outrageous that an internal government body, uh, and it was Elvis Chan, that's his name, uh, FBI agent Elvis Chan, who revealed this in in testimony uh, in the uh, 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 Missouri and Louisiana cases, uh, uh about this topic and elvis chan uh stand, now we, now it's fact we know uh that from a standing official uh there was a body it's it's it seems to all everybody's pointing at this foreign influence board which hey i mean i was part of a number of boards and and task forces uh, you gotta have a charter you gotta have a legal foundation uh, this is out of control. This is insanity. And uh, so the, the big problem with the patent system, we destroyed it. That was one of the early casualties of the marriage of big tech and the Obama Biden team. And um, people are just not getting patents or they're actually going to China. Now, can you actually enforce a patent and, uh, if it's done through China? I, I think that's, that's very sketchy in itself. But the reality is China is essentially surpassing America in patents. We had a system, not perfect, Shot it, you know, destroyed it, um, and China took our system and ran with it.
0: Mm. We, wow. What do you think is the reason they decided to go this route, the administration?
2: Well, I think first and foremost, uh, uh, as we've learned in other situations, uh, legislators do not read their legislation. Uh, usually it's a young 20-something-year-old, which I have nothing against young 20-something-year-olds. But a lot of times they don't have enough life experiences. They don't oftentimes they can add language, but they, act, they rarely know how to cross reference it or know where it's duplicated or know where it steps on other language. Um, this is where you get this 4000 page omnibus bills. Um, so a lot of it is the legislator's fault. Uh, they don't know their legislation. They don't read it. They don't understand it. And this is where the citizen has to hold our legislators accountable. Which is, uh, you have to secure your county. It all begins at their county. But we're getting bad legislation, bad legislators, and and the Obama. This was the early days of the Obama Biden team going, hey, we like this big tech thing, and the marriage took place, and uh, America is now under oppression from this big tech, big government collusion. And this was one of the first steps with the 2011 American Innovates Act. And this, this led to the situation we're in today. It's, it's absolutely horrendous. Now we have government officials actively working against Americans in addition to uh, attacking awarded patents, uh, uh, decrementing them, uh, ripping them, uh, uh, degrading them to, to the point why even have a, an awarded patent. An awarded patent is gold. It used to be gold. Mm. Now it can be attacked and repealed, essentially.
1: You know, I saw some excerpts that you had um, that came across uh, my desk. You, you mentioned deep state, global elite. Is is there an equal force for good on our side? You know, maybe some people mention white hats. Is, does such a thing exist?
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I get a lot of criticism for this and a lot of flack, but there are white hats inside of government. I personally know it, even though I'm retired from government both uniform and civilian. I get a lot of grief for it. They need support. They need direction. They need guidance. Um, but the problem is once you reach what's in the civilian world, what's called the senior executive level and uh, in the uniform military, the equivalent would be the general officers, the admirals. Um, for the most part, we lose most of, because uh, they, they become a uh, uh, they see they see clearly that they gain benefit and especially when they retire and move on by uh feeding and growing the, the deep state there is a deep state and uh that's where in my in my book the nation will follow or the nation i outlined because i realized i was right in the middle of the spying on candidate and then president trump and my pathway to the durham investigation Outing and fingering a number of folks, um, and continuing having to upgrade uh, with the le- recent Twitter releases, I have to update my statements because I've you know, it's corroborated even more of what I, I was aware of. And so, the, we, we have to fight at our county level, secure our county. Uh, it's it's Fulton, it's Maricopa that's messing everything up. But there are white hats; um, they need support.
0: Hmm. Will the support ever happen again? Or do you feel that big state and government are just getting too, too in control now?
2: Well, the, the lawsuits, uh, 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 this is where we have to get states uh, under control and you get states under control by securing your county. Mm-hmm. And then you secure more counties and then you dominate a state. This is This is Florida, this is Texas. Uh, even uh, the Republicans did well in the California elections because they learned, guess what? Ballot harvesting is legal. Get over it and either lose or learn how to ballot harvest. It's legal. Um, so, yes, we can win and we, we have to fight back. And uh, the Missouri and Louisiana lawsuits are awesome because they, they've now a, a standing federal official in sworn testimony said, yeah, yes absolutely we we had an internal vetting organization and body uh i and he was the lead person to, for going to going to twitter and social media and saying censor these americans that's that's on top of what the censoring was already going on so we have to fight through lawsuits through securing counties to build upon that success breeds success uh you know there's only a few counties that are caught that are throwing the whole country and we need Georgia and Arizona to, to get Mayor Cope and Fulton under control. Pennsylvania, it's it's Philadelphia.
0: All right. Now Greg has a question he asks all his successful guests. Well, Go before ahead.
1: I ask that one, Neil, I've got I've got another one to quick follow up. You know, um, do you do you feel the Brunson case up at the Supreme Court is oh, yeah. a chance to get somewhere?
2: Yeah, the Brunson case is brilliant, uh, and and hats off, kudos to the Brunson brothers. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, this is this is an exemplar of citizen action that is getting getting traction all the way. And you know, i in my own county in Prince William County. We are duking it out. We work closely with Loudoun County. You know, I you know the Loudon County parents are are up in arms. Uh, um, and I did my own court. It's very simple to do a court filing and petition the court for a court hearing. It's actually very simple. 80 bucks. Okay, 80 bucks. And I do. a court. Everybody goes, Oh, I need a lawyer. No, you do not need a lawyer. A lawyer will oftentimes screw it up for you. You bring it up, bring a lawyer in at the last moment when you teed up the shot perfectly. But a lot the Brunson case is brilliant. the The hats off. That's brilliant. But I've I've done lawsuits in my own county, uh, got dismissed. But I also got also very key evidence into uh, court, pres- uh, into, into testimony, which is important to build precedence and build evidence. So you could point back to a case might have been dismissed, but very important evidence was was formally submitted. So citizens, do it. Don't wait for a lawyer.
1: Great, thank you.
0: All right, Greg. Now that final question, yours. Oh yeah,
1: sure, no problem at all. You know, so I appreciate it uh, so much. Um, so, quick question, and I'll I'll say in life and in business. Uh, now that you're doing publishing and movies and all that stuff, um, what's the most important thing that you feel that you've learned?
2: You know, I spent almost 40 years facing outward, facing the external threat. The country was stolen behind my back because I forgot about the county and the seven centers of gravity. They're common, all 3,300 roughly county and county equivalents. I was, and, and many Americans, same thing. They're facing outward. They're facing to D.C. Okay, we do need people facing D.C. and and hammering the D.C. swamp culture. But it all the deep state stands upon the shoulders of our county we have to remember it's not exciting it's not sexy everybody go to oh my gosh i you mean i have to go to a county council meeting i have to go to a school board meeting yes yes you do and i learned it it was a hard lesson for me i thought i knew i thought i knew what i was doing and i realized stolen right in front of, in front of me in my county
0: Okay. And Innovation Race will be available as a documentary in January, right? And that is correct. In January that comes out. And is your book already out? Where can we get people to check out your book?
2: Oh, uh, thank you uh, uh, so, so much, Neil. Appreciate that. Uh, so Innovation Race is, is uh, go to innovationrace.com, uh, The Innovation Race. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful movie to understand uh, how we basically took a, a good system and really messed it up. The book is the nationwillfollow.com. The nation Um, me, uh, uh, realizing colleagues were spying on candidate and then president Trump getting in front of the Durham investigation. And then it presents an action plan to, uh, how to dominate our counties. And the preface is written by, uh, Stephen K Bannon. Nice.
0: All right. Fantastic. Well, we appreciate you coming by. Uh, it was a, a lot of fun, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. And everyone needs to check out your book and in the, the movie. Oh, that, All right, take care.
2: Thank you, Neil and Greg.
0: It's an honor to be with it. you. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening and watching celebrity interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Guys, take care. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and you know what? It's great to, uh, you know, the almost the end of the year, I've been doing uh, radio, television, podcasting for over 13 years. December 6th was my uh, anniversary, so I'm excited to welcome somebody that, you know what? He has a million downloads a year of his podcast, and a lot of people just can't even get close to that, and he's a really – Cool guy, Gabe Howard inside mental health. Gabe, thanks for stopping by, man. And, uh, you know, you're also the author of mental health is a a hole as, uh, as I will not put that on my show. But, you know, it's a journey, right? You thinking of, of coming up with this podcast and doing this and where you've grown to and where you, where you're going, right?
3: Yeah. So the, the, I, I I hate correcting hosts on the show, so don't throw anything at my head, but it's mental illness is an a-hole and Uh. inside mental health. So you got the inside mental health absolutely on the nose. And then yeah, mental illness is an a-hole, you know, mental health doesn't have to be an a-hole, right? Many of us have good mental health. We're, We're super lucky in that way.
0: I don't know where I got that. That was a Freudian slip because (laughs) everyone in this world is suffering through something right now. And it's gotten to the level that, uh, I don't know, tell us how this kind of started for you and your career. And we'll go from there to like the podcast, the book, everything in your brand. So
3: there's... Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. The first thing I want to say is you're absolutely right. People hear that everybody's going through something and they think not everybody is crazy. Not everybody is nuts. not I'm fine. I'm fine. But everybody has mental health. And most people have good mental health most of the time. But just like most people have good physical health most of the time, you can still get a cold. You can still have a runny nose. You can still get in an accident. Grief is obviously a, a, a big thing when it comes to mental health. There's just There's just all kinds of things that can happen to everyone. And I I do mean everyone, right? There's, There's not many absolutes in the world, but everyone can have a bad mental health moment. As I alluded to, grief is the really big one that makes people start thinking, okay, maybe this guy's onto something. Because if you tell me that after someone you love dies, you have the same mental faculty and stability as when they were just fine and in your life. That's, that's, that's a hard sell for anybody to, and they're like, you're right. You're right. After I lose somebody I love, I do not expect to be at a hundred percent. And what started it for me is when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So I have the serious and persistent mental illness. I'm, I'm right on the mental illness side, which of course is why the book is mental illness is an a-hole uh, because it is, it's, it's being diagnosed is horrible. Uh, living with mental illness is horrible. The way society views me, treats me is horrible. The resources I had available to help me all horrible. So I was 26 years old back in 2003. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and, uh, and a lot of bad stuff happened to me before, during, and after. And now I just talk about it. <laughs>
0: man and so that you have plenty of time on your hands so how do you deal with bipolar disorder and having a business a job kind of explain that to me you know
3: yeah so the first things first it's it's always difficult to answer these questions because uh, you get like two minutes to try to sum up 20 years worth of uh, coping skills experience therapy visits and of course the big one mistakes right? There's so many things that I just completely screwed up and thought, huh, I don't want to do that again because it hurt my mom or it hurt my friend or it hurt my wife or it hurt me. So what can I do different next time this symptom comes on or this feeling comes on or I'm in this same situation and having a long time to learn all those things is super important. But Therapy is super important to me, again, to process those things, because I can't think of everything. I, I just know that something went wrong. Like that, that, is the, that is the landing point for Gabe Howard. That was bad. I'm looking backwards at what I did last week, and I think, huh, wow, wow. I, I, here's an example. I got so angry that I told my mom I hated her. In the moment, it sounded good, like I was winning the argument. You put some distance there. The, the, the symptoms relax. I'm no longer manic. I'm not experiencing those racing thoughts, that grandiosity. I'm just right in the center. I'm normal. I'm, I'm, and I'm like, dude, you're the guy that said you hated your mom. And uh, how do you get past that? Like how, how do you, I want to say like, I'm a good son. Yeah. Yeah. But like anybody would say, you know, good sons, they don't have to tell people they're good sons. People just know that they are. Mm -hmm. So now I've got to make amends for all of that. I've got to fix all that. But more importantly, I got to make sure I'm never in that situation again. Medication is also extraordinarily helpful. You know, the downside of bipolar disorder is there's, there's, you know, it's bipolar. It's right in the names. There's the extreme highs you know, what I refer to as godlike mania. It's where you think you're invincible to the extreme lows, suicidal depression, where you think you're worthless. And if you were dead, nobody would care. uh, And then everything in between. So the medication takes those two extremes and, and pushes them together into a much more manageable range. It's not to say that you never slip outside those guardrails, but you, you slip outside those guardrails less frequently, and you have more notice that you're getting to that point. And, and you can institute some of those coping mechanisms and, and, and things that really keep you safe. It's not a perfect system. I'm certainly not symptom-free, but that really, really helps to answer the second question as to the business, right? Stay by day, right? I got to do something. I got to, I got I to eat <laughs> and I, I like to eat, man. I'm uh, food is, I love, I love, I love food. Neil food is, I love, I love food. So it's, it's, it, it can be a struggle and it can be awesome. And isn't that just, doesn't that just describe? So you do
0: entrepreneurship or you work a job? What do you do? Is it just your business?
3: Yeah, this is my business. I'm, 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 an author, speaker, podcaster. Uh, this this is my job. I was really fortunate. When I was first diagnosed, I had, you know, the, the nine to five, uh, I worked in it. I worked in, in computers and networking. I transitioned into public relations and fundraising where I worked a job while I was doing that. I did a lot of public speaking and, you know, obviously, if you're in public relations, you're addressing the public a lot. Yeah. And uh, eventually people are like, wow, you're really good at this and uh, you you should you should do it more. Uh, and you should talk about your experience. you're right. and you should talk about your experience. You're really open with this kind of thing. Wow. Uh, so I started volunteering, telling my story. Uh, So, and and it grew from there. I I would love to tell you, Neil, that this was like, like I wrote a business plan. I did a SWOT analysis. I hired a whole bunch of MBAs. I'm a super awesome business. No. No, I fell backwards. I think the challenge
0: of bipolar disorder is the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, business owners. Again, defining entrepreneurship, you're you're doing something different than everybody else and you're getting seed money and all that. So we're business owners, both of us, to to deal with some days are such tremendous highs and some days are such tremendous lows. And to already be dealing what you're dealing with and being self-employed with your business man, that's gonna to be tough because you're gonna have tremendous highs and tremendous lows and you don't really wanna deal with that to keep yourself at an even pace. And that's why lots of people cannot be business owners. They cannot rely on their paycheck to be putting out whatever they do every day, right? I, Hustling, doing those yeah. things. It, it's,
3: it, it's fascinating that you bring that up because my, my mother, way, way back when, this was, was, this was 15 years ago, I got like my first paid gig uh, speak speaking engagement and it paid $2,500. Right. And, and I told my mom, I'm like, mom, mom, somebody's paying me $2,500 for a speech. And she's like, how long is the speech? And I was like, it's like an hour. She goes, wow, my son makes $2,500 an hour. And uh, I was like, no, no mom. I've, I've been, I've been volunteering, working for free, working for negative money, for two years. I I had to write the speech. I have to get on a plane and try, like, I don't just pop up on the podium, give a speech. And then, you know, I'm I'm back in my living room. Right. But she can't get it all these years later. She doesn't understand that some of the work I do, I get paid for. And some of the work I do, I don't get paid for. And when you average that out, that's how much that's your salary for your quote unquote job, because that's all done for her. Right. She just, she just goes to work. Now her, her workplace knows that some of the work they have her do, they lose money on some of the work they have her do. They make money on, they average that all out, take a little off the top for them and then give her a salary. But as far as my mom con- is concerned, every other Friday, she gets the same amount. So every hour is worth exactly the same amount of money to her. That is not the case when you own your own business. And the the highs are really great, right? Signing that contract to get that speech, signing that contract with that advertiser for your podcast. Get, get, those get a, are a big, 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 big moments.
0: Get a big payday from a client, you know, yeah. or just those, those days where you're you're told you're the greatest and then things, or money is coming. And then there's the days where, oh man, I wish I could just have, be mindless. So yeah. but what you're dealing with, the challenge you're dealing with, Gabe, is the fact that and don't, it's, you're fragile in a way. You know, even though you're on the medication, all that stuff, that a certain low could put you back down. We look at the people that are the great uh, comedians that end up committing suicide, you know, and all these different things. So mental health is something people are just not discussing. Uh, there was a article out i think about how many people are dissatisfied with their jobs and how many people are depressed right now that are working they have a job that's why everyone wants to to be doing what you and i do but the problem is they're not willing to take working for free they're not gonna they're not gonna take late nights and and uh weird hours and different things like that how do you deal with it man because that's not a really great recommendation for somebody bipolar disorder to be a business owner
3: yeah there so the first thing is is People with bipolar disorder own businesses all the time. You just got to make sure that you start them when you're stable. I, I think everybody has the, the, and this is 100% true, right? Bipolar disorder has this grandiosity and this, this manic sort of uh, notion to it, not notion, it's symptom. Symptom is the word I'm looking for, right? Where you think that you are the greatest of all time. And in that time you invent Amazon, you invent Walmart, you invent Yelp, all of these things already exist, right? And they were, they were, they were started years ago with hundreds of millions of dollars, they're billion dollar companies, but no, you are gonna take on Amazon. So so you will be able to do that if
0: you have bipolar disorder, meaning if you were, if you were not getting it treated that's the type of manic highs you could try to do.
3: Yeah, you start right. a thousand businesses. And as you pointed out, let's go back to something you said. You said they can't take working for free, the late nights and the uncertainty, right? So that's the problem. So so there, there's, there's several stages of I don't think anybody
0: can as a business owner if you interviewed them. So till they, yeah. so they got their first big deal, meaning like became a millionaire or a billionaire. Then they could probably say, Okay, uh, I'm a little bit more confident in what I'm doing, but at those other stages, you probably interviewed them. No.
3: they all had that. The problem with bipolar disorder, uh, untreated or unmanaged, right, is uh, the 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 ups and downs. Like like let's here, let me put it together like this. Okay. So if you are unmanaged, untreated, you're not stable with bipolar disorder, your emotions are all over the place. Okay. So keep that in your right. One, one minute you're, you're, you know, you, you are the greatest business person to ever live the next minute you're garbage and your mom wouldn't care if you were dead. Now let's put that aside for a moment and talk about the emotions that go along with entrepreneurship. One minute, you are the greatest business person to ever live. And the next minute your mom is like, get a real job. You're embarrassing the family. Yes. Right? I, I, I'd like to believe that most people with with, with uh entrepreneurial I, ideas are are not suicidal and I and they the have to surround themselves
0: with the right people, man. The, they uh, have to, you know, and you're talking mental health. You have to, you have to be with people who are like-minded if you're a business owner. You know, so the reason I'm learning this is my mentor taught me this about entrepreneurship is to having a specific idea. That if you Google it right now, but everyone calls themselves an entrepreneur. Really, we're business owners, and that's okay. Right. We're, we're we are, we are we're we're not working for the man, right? We get the <laughs> opportunity to do it what the hell we want to do when we want to do it. That's probably the best definition of a business owner. We get to do what the hell we want to do when we want to do it. But ultimately, if we want to have more money, we got to do it more. And ultimately, right. we we have to hire more people if we want to expand. And if we want to expand even more, we have to hire more people and more stress and more different things. But it's much better for in our mindset than somebody else outside and say, Yeah, pay me a salary. I'll get home and I'll go back to the normal days. And that's it. So there, but there's I a certain imagine.
3: routine that comes with working for someone, but it's not as exciting. It's not as fun. And it's um, not. You, mean, awesome. the I, you
0: know, You know, I had Sean Cannon on my show yesterday. I got to talk to somebody that worked with Prince and all these major people. I talk to people all the time, and that's one of my businesses. But meaning then I get to go in calls and talk about some venture capitalist I was on a phone call this morning already with. These are the things that not the average, normal, everyday person is. Or I was talking to an Academy Award director yesterday wants to maybe do a project with me. Okay? There you go.
3: I mean… As soon uh, (laughs) as… No, I know exactly no. what you mean, because it, it's the same thing. The people that I got to interview, the people that I get to talk to, I, I, Alanis Morissette would have never walked into a room with me if I was not, if I was this. If I was working a nine to five job, it, it wouldn't have happened. And and it, it's amazing, right? And, and that's the non-money that people have to look at. But it comes after... It to
0: make money that's the thing i do and teach people to do is that you have an idea you have a dream you have a specific thing you can make money doing it you just don't want to start everything before you go to the first steps you gotta grind you can't just become a star it's not the way things work but that's where you know we come in but i mean i i commend you man because I can tell you, I, I deal with the ups and downs, and I'm able to deal with it really well. I, I don't lose sleep when I know there's a client upset with me, or somebody, or I'm dealing with some sort of thing, and I need to have money in a specific time or a certain place. I just go to bed, hit the pillow, go back, and I'm back rolling again. If you watch the movie, and this is a really good, I can't. You, you like me in podcast, right? It's like it's the conversation, and I'm sure that's where your success is. No. I'm able to go ahead and, you know, uh, I like Ray Kroc. If you watched again, the founder, he kept getting hit. He kept getting knocked down, but he kept getting back up. That's me. You, As a former professional wrestler, you know, taking the pin one night. Next night, I'm back out and trying to win the championship again. I could get Nick knocked down, but the problem sometimes is the all-time lows that bipolar lead to yeah. lead to – did who has bipolar disorder that end up passing away for suicide and stuff? Do you have a list of the certain celebrities?
3: Kurt, Kurt Cobain is the big one. The, the lead singer of Nirvana. I, here's a guy who is literally the front man for what is still the, the biggest musical movement of my generation. I, the, the man practically invented alternative music and launched the genre. He just smells like teen spirit is still a hit 30 years later. And uh, Kurt Cobain, once in a lifetime musical talent, d- d- world famous. I and and he's gone. He's just gone. He could all of those millions, all of that fame, all of that talent, and all of those people couldn't save him from bipolar disorder. Mm. And that's a that's a that's a big thing that people like me think about a lot. Because if he can't do it, h- how can I do it? I don't I don't have any of those things. I'm not world famous. I'm not a billionaire. I'm not a once in a lifetime See, but, musical but you talent. Say I'm not
0: because someday, someday. you may so someday.
3: But currently, but remember, and especially when I was diagnosed, when I was sitting in that psychiatric hospital, I was absolutely not, not Kurt oh Cobain. Man, that's a, right,
0: exactly. And your your genius comes out at different times. So people can subscribe to the, so basically your book and your podcast is why you're on the show. I just have a conversation because I think an entrepreneurial slash business owner discussion is interesting because people that will listen to both of us before they go and, Say, you know, I'm ready to retire and to have and have fun. Well, the fun is fun. You just got to put the, the work in. As Gary V would say, and I would not say the rest of it, is basically you got to put the work in because guess what? If you don't put the work in, it's not going to happen. Right or wrong, Gabe? You don't put it's the work in. It's never going to happen.
3: And listen, I, I, I love the comparison to being a business owner and, and, and being an entrepreneur and managing bipolar, right there, because there there's so many similarities managing bipolar disorder takes a lot of effort that pays off later. Being a successful entrepreneur, entrepreneur takes a lot of effort that pays off later. I would love to tell you with bipolar disorder that you're like, Hey, I want to reach recovery. And then two weeks later, you've reached recovery. It doesn't happen. It's a long process. I would love to tell you that you start a business and over overnight you're a success you're Look, not how many how many how many businesses are successful in profit bro
4: There's
0: 10%, so I think 10 10 and then the other ones you see they think have money because they've seen money doesn't mean they profited what's right? fascinating I mean, investors to me when you're back yeah
3: Neil, I, I'm sure you've heard this quote. I'm sure your listeners have heard this quote, but the, the, the greatest quote that I ever heard, I think it's one of my personal favorites is I had to work 10 years to become an overnight success. So many people focus on the, Oh, they became an overnight success. I, you talked about my million podcast downloads. That's great. I'm super proud of it. I worked really, really hard. I'm so proud, right? I'm not trying to, 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 I'm, I'm not crapping on my success, but I'm on year seven, let's go back to year one. There wasn't a million podcast downloads about a mental health podcast seven years ago. Th- there was nothing. I, I have some of the emails of people telling me I suck. Uh, and, and for what it's worth, they, they were right. The advice was good. I needed to improve a lot. I was inexperienced. There was no podcast conferences or class. I mean, there were, I just wasn't it's aware crazy of I now stuff they have. But I
0: think again, that the people who are podcasters, because I, uh, I was in Clubhouse as uh, one of the top podcast people that was talking about podcasts. And all these people were just told, you're going to make millions in a podcaster. You better just go on YouTube, right? You better go on TikTok. But it still, it doesn't guarantee anything. And if you're not interesting, who gives us – they're not going to care. Right. right. And, I, and if you're, lucky up, enough you're not going to hustle, tune in, you're not you going to well, hold them. You're not going to build followers. You're not going to gain a, a community, build a community like you have. And, you know, right place, right time, hustle, 3 a.m., hustle then. And that's not good for, you know, a a business owner's health or someone with bipolar disorder. So there there you go. So where can people tune in? Where's the best play?
3: The Inside Inside Mental Health podcast, of course, is available on every single podcast player known to man. Our website is psychcentral.com slash show. You can check it out there. And then of course the book is available on or you know, mental illness is an a-hole. You you gotta spell it out. You gotta use the S's. But mental illness is an a-hole is available, of course, on Amazon. But if you want a signed copy with free show swag, head over to gabehoward.com and I'll sign it for you. You can even tell me how to sign it. Make up funny names. People do all the time. It's hilarious.
0: All right. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show and also the Caregiver Dave celebrity segment. I'm so excited to welcome to the show, Caregiver Dave and Sandy. Dave, how, how are you doing? You? Good. Good.
5: good, good, awesome.
0: You know, I always say, you know, I just keep going. It's We got uh, 15 days left, right, to the new year. Let's just keep uh, going and just keep rolling. Some people have stopped. The media giant does not stop. And our guest today is Valerie June Hockett. She's a Grammy nominated musician yeah somebody to love is her children's book Valerie June how are you and thanks for stopping by
6: doing great thank you for having me guys I'm so thrilled to talk to you
0: I'm thrilled to talk to you did you always always when you were thinking about things want to be a musician was that something you always wanted to do
6: I always wanted to be a singer and I never believed I could and being a musician is a whole nother level that I had to really really believe for so both of them were things I wanted little seeds that I had planted inside when I was a child but um I never thought that it was possible so I had to kind of dream it up.
0: <laughs> you dream it to, to, to achieve it
5: Dave it's not true no That's no. right
0: if you can't dream it
5: you can't see it. <laughs>
0: Right. Exactly. So, Dave, I'm going to let you ask a question, Valerie. Go ahead.
5: Well, uh, you look like a children's author, so (laughs) uh, I I can see how children would naturally be drawn to you. So you're a Grammy Award uh, nominated singer and you're a children's author. What came first? Did you have a passion to write before you had a passion to sing
6: yeah well i wanted to write i think that writing did in some ways come first because because you know you grow up in english class writing papers and doing things and reading literature and i always thought you know how cool would it be when i grew up to be (laughs) a writer but I also love music and I love songs. So, and once I did actually grow up and I was in my early teens, like nineteen, twenty, 20 you know, all in that area, um, and I was deciding what I would do with my life for a living. The song then it switched, and the songwriting came before the the book writing and being an author. So. Wow. Um, As a child, it was the other way around. And in reality, it was the other way around. So it it changes. Your dreams change as you get older. Is
5: it the lyrics you write or the melody or both?
6: Both, yes.
5: Wow. What a gift. And then also, I I guess, opening up for big bands like Dave Matthews
0: and stuff like that. That's got to be crazy amazing. Awesome.
6: The coolest part about that is when you meet them and they're just so down to earth and normal to be such huge stars, you know, they're just normal and sweet and amazing people. People like Kim, I've opened for Nora Jones and Sturgill oh, Simpson wow. and Mavis Staples and different people and they're all so, they've been great, really.
5: What a blessed life and that accent sounds like Nashville, is that right? <laughs>
6: A little more south than that. About two hours south in Nashville, Alabama. Not that far. Sometimes when people hear my accent, they say Texas. So that's way too far. Back it up,
5: buddy. Back yeah. it up. All, all all of Neil's exes live in Texas. Yes. Oh, that's
0: uh, oh, that's okay.
5: So let's go back to the question, day
0: now, uh, Valerie. When speaking about uh, you know, the whole thought process of this children's book how did you go about how long did it take you to do and like the whole passion behind this project
6: well the name of the book is somebody to love the story of Jean's sweet little baby banjo and a banjo is a mixture of a banjo and a ukulele and i play both of those instruments and wow. so for christmas one year a friend gave me this surprise! What I thought was a toy, and it was a banjoletti. And so the banjoletti is so small compared to guitars or cellos or basses or instruments like that. And I just thought this is not real. But over time, I started to play it, and it came to life for me as a musician. And I started writing songs on it and recording with it, and traveling around the world and bringing it to my shows. And as I was sharing this with the students with the Turnaround Arts program, which uh, Michelle Obama, when they were in the White House, started Turnaround Arts, and all of us would go into schools throughout the nation and share our art, anything from writing to music to being an actor, whoever she invited to the program would share their art, and I was sharing the story of the banjo with students, and they, you know, the director of the program said, you should make that a kid's story. So it took me three or four years to turn it into a kid's story, but I finally did.
5: (laughs) Congratulations. Yeah. I don't think we've ever had a author and a singer on the show, at the same time, children's author anyway. We lost your audio, Neil.
0: Uh, I combined, I don't think we have, that's for sure. And so it is what it is. So now here's my question for you. What is your hope with the children's book? What do you want people to get out of it the most?
6: Well, it's not just for children because I think everyone has a dream everyone and one of the biggest dreamers who was on earth was dr king who had the dream for oneness of humanity and that we'd all get along and bring (laughs) us together and so dreams are that important they're that magical and they're that special for all of the planet for everyone and we live in times where dreaming is if we need to reignite our imagination and we need to dream again and so i want children to be inspired to dream but i also want to Awaken adults to what a dream is and that we all have them and we should believe in them even when we feel like the weight of the world is keeping us from going for it. And so I go to schools and I see students who are anywhere from first grade to third grade, and I talk to them about dreams, I talk to them about goals, and I talk to them about bravery, courage, confidence, inspiration, and the reasons why sometimes dreams are challenging, but you have to have courage and you have to be brave and you have to persevere. And I talk to them about all of that, the struggles, the challenges, the good, the bad, and the ugly of what a dream is.
5: Good for you, because dreams start in the minds of children. Have you come across any children who have never dreamed or didn't have any?
6: I haven't. They're all full of dreams, right? So They've got natural. dreams.
5: They are, but then over the years, people quench their dream. Oh, you can't do that. Oh, you, what are you crazy? You know, and you've got to tell them to hang on to that dream.
6: Exactly, because I think if we if we can start watering those seeds and keeping that side of our
1: minds
6: and strong then as we get older when change Mm. needs to happen or things need to happen that could be positive in the world we're more open to believing that they can come true that it can get better
0: don't let go of your dreams Mm
6: -hmm.
0: totally don't give up on those dreams and the hope and what hope do you want to give people today the kids when you talk to them for first third grade you said their dreams when you talk to the young people that are in first through third grade, what do they tell you, those kids? Because kids tell you a lot at that time and the, the types of dreams they're looking for, especially in our society today
6: well many oh they're so brilliant many of I have so many uh students that ask questions during the Q&A that I can't even get to all of them (laughs) because there'll be like 300 students with 5,000 questions per student (laughs) and so um many of them want to be things like singers dancers um writers but also they want to do be things like veterinarians teachers um pathologists doctors I mean I could not believe it when a second grade Said he wanted to be a pathologist. I was like, What? How do you know already? Or a librarian, and part of the. Somebody's to love a book, part of the proceeds go to be donated to children's literacy. And so that's really important to me, too, as a dream, because part of dreaming is that you can go open a book, enter a whole new world, and learn anything you want to. You can also do that on YouTube, but books are like meeting a new person from a different time period, you know? And so I think that inspiring them to read and inspiring them to dream, those are the two goals with the book.
5: Wow. Good for you. Awesome.
0: All right. So Dave, you have a caregiver, Dave question, uh, basically about who he is, uh, why he's called Dave, the caregiver. Go ahead, Dave.
5: (laughs) Yeah, Valerie, uh, 25 years ago, I've been married for about 48 years, but halfway through my wife has the stroke. Don't know why it happened. Doctors don't know why. Lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. And we went through a terrible grieving period where she was angry and bitter and taking it out on me. And and I don't think I could do it, you know, so I we almost broke up. But then we hung in there and we got through it. I went to a support group. I learned how to put my oxygen mask on first. She started responding, coming around. Our love was rekindled. And now I'm Dave, the caregiver's caregiver. And we travel all over the world speaking on television and stages, just helping caregivers stay alive. 30% of them die before the loved ones do. And so now I'm putting on caregiver wellness retreats in Acapulco at this villa in this millionaire section that I have access to now. And it just helps caregivers to get away from their responsibilities and just relax and recharge your batteries. And it's a mastermind. It's coaching. It's coaching. And uh, that's where I'm going today, these days.
6: Wow, that is incredible. Um, My mother was the caregiver for my father in his transition. And he is so hard on the caregivers. So that is is. Very, very special task. And also as my best friend who gave me the baby Vangelalee passed from cancer, (laughs) there were two or three other friends and we took care of her in her transition. So it's very difficult. So what you're offering in Acapulco, caregivers need it.
5: I know. And, and they won't do it themselves. They need a loved one of the caregiver to say, you know what, you need to get away and I'm going to send you to Acapulco because don't worry about it. We'll take care of grandma and all of that stuff. Exactly. Well, definitely caregiverdave.com, right, Dave? That's where they need care- to go?
0: Caregiverdave.com. All right. And Valerie, we can purchase a book anywhere. And is, do you have a website as well? People can check you out?
6: I do. It's ValerieJune.com and the book has a website of its own, which is SomebodyToLoveBook.com That was created by the fabulous illustrator Marcela Avalar. The colors wow. of the book are so bright and vivid, and that's because of Marcela. Let's see.
5: I bet yellow is in there too.
6: I know <laughs> it. I'm going to show you a copy right now. Yes.
2: Oh, it's uh, yellow just, writing.
5: It looks so it's nice. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful, gorgeous. Oh, I've never seen a ukulele banjo. That's it's pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah. it's,
5: it's a new real new. instrument, huh? So, do you have some music? Your website's music too for you.
0: For are you still performing? Are you traveling and performing too?
6: Yes, the winter time is dedicated to the book, and then I'm going on tour throughout the rest of the year. So, all that's on there.
0: Oh right, and uh, goals for music. someday it's going to be a Grammy, right? You got a nomination. someday it'll be a Grammy, right?
6: We're, yeah we're doing it we're gonna do it you never know you never know no you
0: shouldn't give up on your dreams and that's the whole story right don't give up on your dreams and keep your dreams will come true so i appreciate exactly. it Thanks you gotta now. get
5: nominated before you win you know
0: yeah she already was nominated so i know. That's so so she's going to we're halfway there she's going yeah. to all right well, we appreciate it Valerie.
6: All right. Have a great day, guys. Thank you. Nice uh, you're
0: listening and watching the Neil Haley show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show here on the Caregiver Dave. <laughs> uh, Caregiver Dave celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome program. Caregiver Dave Nisani. Dave, how are you? And you know what? Right. It's You're just rolling, right? Get ready. To everyone to go to Al Capuca, right? I'm,
5: I'm leaving tomorrow. No, I'm leaving Sunday. And here it's raining in southern sunny California. It's pouring rain. So I'll be looking forward to laying on the, the beach in Acapulco.
0: All right. My guest today is author Derek O'Hanley, author of Photos from the Front Lines, a year of the streets in Alameda California County. How are you, Derek? And thanks for stopping by, man.
4: Happy to be here, Neil. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, so just talk about the specifics, you know, of oh. being a photographer. Was that always something you wanted to do, you know, growing up and stuff, photography?
4: You know, it it was something I did kind of on an amateur level. My mom was an inspiration. My uncle, great uncle, I'm sorry, who lived next door, he was actually a uh, photographer in the World War II Pacific Theater. He was part of the Marine Corps aerial reconnaissance um, unit. And so between the two of them, uh, I feel like I got some inspiration as a kid. And then getting older, I, I, you know, worked as a paramedic and, um, you know, we see some crazy stuff out there on the streets. And so I got back when cameras were just getting small enough to stick in your pocket before they were on phones um i got one and i brought it in the field and got some interesting stuff and you know this kind of this project kind of was born out of something like that where you know it's interesting to see the the car accidents and the kind of more spectacular things that you see in the field but this is more focused on the providers and trying to really humanize the folks who are in this profession because i think that the career of a paramedic is kind of esoteric for people. You know, they're out there, they see the ambulances driving around, if they call 911, they show up. But what they actually do, the nuts and bolts and the, the trauma that these folks are exposed to, I think, is often going unnoticed.
5: Are you in Alameda County, of California?
4: Correct, I was. I recently moved up to the Portland area a few months ago, but that's where I was for the last 10 years or so.
5: That's Northern California, right, uh, Alameda?
4: Yeah, Bay Area, um, East Bay, from San Francisco.
5: What's it like there? Crime? Uh, just normal part of California, or what?
4: Alameda County is an interesting area. Um, it's home to Oakland, so obviously a giant urban center, um, and all the um, things that come along with that. A fluent also-
5: area. It's affluent.
4: There's also, yeah, there's also the Oakland Hills. So lots of lots of money up in the hills. There's also um, going south in the county gets a lot more rural. So there's Dublin, Pleasanton, Livermore, um, things like that. So to be a paramedic in Alameda County is an interesting thing because you can go from being out in the country, dealing with a car accident to being in Oakland and dealing with a shooting the next call. So it's a very varied place to work. Um, I think that helped with getting some of the interesting shots that we did out there in the field.
0: What did you learn from seeing the the what was happening on the front lines with you know putting this whole book together?
4: Yeah, I think that's the that was kind of the genesis of the whole project, Neil. But um, I knew that the, the these stories were happening out there, um, and I knew that they would go unnoticed if they weren't documented. Um, amazing things that these paramedics were doing. I mean, guys, you got to understand this job is so difficult mentally, physically, um, on the folks that do it ordinarily. I mean, just talking about the traumatic exposures of a medic working in Oakland for six months. And, you know, that's more than the average soldier sees in their lifetime. And so, um, to have that, and then on top of that, now we have this global pandemic descending upon the world, um, and Mm -hmm. medics don't have the option to work from home. They have to go in, they have to, the, and, you know, every call they show up to could potentially be a COVID case, you know, it's it's an invisible enemy, they don't know. And so um, to have this pressure on top of the ordinary levels of traumatic exposures that these folks were facing was unbelievable. I mean, there's there's one thing that um, I saw out there was, uh, it still almost brings me to tears today, was the, it's a small segment in the book, but it talks about um, paramedics who were volunteering to go into nursing homes. I'm sure you remember in the beginning of the pandemic, nursing homes were just being burned through with the virus. Um, And it got to the point where everyone on the staff had to be homesick because they all caught it. And so the, the county asked if paramedics would be willing to volunteer to go into these nursing homes where everyone's been wiped out in order to take care of these patients. And I'll be dipped if folks voluntarily, who'd been on the front lines for months already, volunteer to walk into these nursing homes and take care of these folks. And man, if you have a better example of service before self and self-sacrifice, I'd love to hear it.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I'm a caregiver and uh, it's near and dear to my heart. Do you actually have a lot of photos in the uh, nursing homes?
4: I only got a few just because it's kind of tricky to, cause I don't want to expose patient privacy and things like that. So most of my shots were focused on the providers. And again, this this whole, this whole project, um, you know, essentially could have easily not happened. I could have just stayed home throughout this entire thing. But, you know, it's also a great risk to myself and, yeah. you know, unique to this battlefront, if you will, because I, like, I use military vernacular in the book quite a bit to try and tie those two conceptions in people's minds together of military and medic. Because, again, the level of traumatic exposures that paramedics see is only comparable to that of someone who's been in combat or, you know, a I soldier or something it, like that. The
0: PTSD, Derek, the challenges before COVID. Thank you for your service in this area because you guys are underpaid. You're the ones that are always there when it's the biggest emergencies possible, the biggest traumas compared to being in the military. And people in the military are not dealing with trauma like you. You're guaranteed if you become a paramedic, you're going to have trauma every day, right? I mean, there's going to be a traumatic call or different thing less than a police officer anything. And people don't see that. They don't really value guys as first responders, or we don't value enough to just put you on a pedestal by themselves. That's my- That's
4: totally, I agree 100%. And that's that's a a saying I heard recently from someone I was talking with was, you know, the military protects us overseas, first responders protect us at home. And I think we need to start thinking about our first responders like we do our military, because like you're saying, Neil, you know, I, I served with folks when I was in the military who- Spent their four years working in the logistics office, which is extremely important, and they should be thanked for their service 100. But let's compare the traumatic exposures of the logistics clerk. To, like I said, any medic who's been on the streets of Oakland or any other major city for more than a few months, and there is no comparison. So that's why I have a started kind of a campaign for you know hashtag Thank Medics for their service because yeah. I think as society we need to. I mean that that's the basic level, but like what else can we do to take care of these folks? Like you know you see. That's kind of my thing too, is like, you know, no one cares about World War One, right? Because there's no photos, there's no videos. Once I started pushing photographers and video folks to the front lines of World War Two, they started showing the civilians these images they are like, that this is what these folks have to deal with. Like, this is what they're seeing. Like, wow, we should thank these folks. We should, you know, take care of their healthcare and their education and, you know, make sure that these folks are exalted in society. And so that's what, that's kind of the mission behind what the book is, is kind of hearkening back to those days of black and white, World War II, battleground photography to hopefully, you know, trigger an emotional response in folks. And, you know, if you see something, then you're more likely to understand it and want to take care of it.
5: Yeah, did you know any first responders who actually died of COVID? And how many times did you con- contract it? <laughs>
4: uh, I only contracted it once. Um, I know there were quite a few medics who got pretty bad cases of it, actually, especially with the first strains that were coming around before the vaccines and all this stuff. Um, and But fortunately, I don't know of any medics, at least in Alameda County that I'm aware of, who perished from it. But definitely, it wiped out quite a few, especially in the early days. A lot crazy. of them are younger. Yes, it is a rather younger um population. Workforce, yeah. Um a because it's really hard to to I don't know how anyone stays in this career field for 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, people do it. It's just it's astounding to me. It makes my jaw drop when I see these folks and their level of resilience that these folks must have to be able to do it is just astronomical. Um but that being said, I one of the things that really struck me about being out there in the field was you know, there's all the accidents and this and that, and you expect a medic in Oakland to be kind of grizzled and have that kind of emotional armor and, you know, things like that. And, and they do, and they can come across kind of gruff, you know, especially if they don't know you. Uh, but the thing that really struck me was that despite all they see and despite the, the gruffness, the compassion is still there. Yeah. You know, when the chips are down, when someone needs an- another human being to just connect with and be there for them there's still that heart is still there and the compassion is still there. And to me, that was one of the not something that is a spectacular thing you can capture in an image, but something that really struck me um, being out there with these folks again.
0: Oh, wow. You know, I wanted to one more thing, Derek. So are you still practicing as a paramedic?
4: I'm still certified, but I'm not in the game anymore. I how have.
0: Long, how long since you've
4: been out? I still teach, I teach EMTs. Um so I've been an educator for probably the last 10 years or so. Um but I mentally I can't I can't do the game anymore. I mean it's so difficult. Um I mean I, I might be better off now cuz I'm actually doing things like therapy and and that type of stuff to to process a lot of these things, but that wasn't therapy and post traumatic stress things like that were not mentioned when I was in paramedic school. I can tell you that much. Um so it. I'm kind of I'm kind of playing catch up. <laughs> my mental health. And I'm hopefully, you know, exposure to things like this. And these shows will help, you know, inspire medics and those to, you know, take care of them and take care of themselves. Cause this is such a hard thing, such a hard thing to deal with.
0: Every medic needs to buy your book. And that's for sure. I'll be sharing it in groups and stuff, this interview because to, to medic groups, because uh, and getting that name out there to every list, to every medic in the, in the, all the United States and maybe all the world, they need to have this book just to kind of say, thank you for highlighting them. Now, Dave has a question regarding caregiving. Go ahead, Dave. He's an amazing story just like yours, Derek.
5: Yeah. So 25, 26 years ago, I became a caregiver when my wife suffered a stroke. She lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side Mm -hmm. and, and we almost broke up, you know, the grief process, but we hung in there. I went to a support group and she started becoming her old self again. Our love was rekindled and And uh, so I realized there are other caregivers out there who are suffering and going through what I did. And I made a lot of mistakes. So I became Dave, the caregiver's caregiver. I now host a syndicated radio show. I've spoken on 60 TV uh, programs, morning uh, network shows all across the country. I started caregiverdave.com. It's an online support group. And my question to you, Derek, is... uh,